BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. David just texted me. It's so rainy and wet. I found an earthworm in our bedroom windowsill. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Well, in these first two months of the legislative session, hardly a day goes by without reporters like me getting email from lawmakers trumpeting a bill they've introduced, a bill they say will solve some problem out there. Well, today on The Breakdown, the life and death of legislation in Sacramento, how some bills are killed almost immediately, why some legislators introduce bills they know won't ever make it out of committee, much less to the governor's desk. But first, the March election. Today is the day that ballots start arriving in mailboxes in California. Actually, I got mine on Friday from San Francisco. But we're going to take a look at something in the voter guide that most of us read before voting. That is the title and summary of ballot measures that you see in the official voter guide and on the ballot. And some just say the process of writing those is too political. Joining us is Samia Kamal from Cal Matters. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So, Marisa, let me begin with you. Uh, these uh, ballot titles and summaries, they're written by the attorney general, who right now is a Democrat, Rob Bonta. Why are they so important? Why should we care? Right. I mean, because most ballot measures that voters are being asked to make a decision on are essentially pages and pages of legal speak. And this is really the place that the state put, you know, puts out there. The, the way you would explain it to your mom, right? Like, how, what is the nuts and bolts of this measure? Um, and so because not all voters have the time or maybe desire to read the text of the measure, this is really telling in the way a lot of people decide how to vote. I think, Samia, that it's also um, supposed to be written to like an eighth grade level, which I think is also how newspapers are written, so that they're understandable by the vast majority of folks. Um, and that would seem pretty straightforward, but it's actually quite political. Like, talk about that and how it gets to be that way. Yeah, it's a debate that seems to pop up every election cycle, and it's typically by one of the groups that, you know, is um, who takes issue with how it's written. Um, so California election law does require that the descriptions be true and impartial, and there shouldn't be an argument. But, um, you know, in, in practice, um, that doesn't always um, that doesn't always happen. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, I think, after the 2020 election, there were within two weeks between when the ballot titles were published and and when the ballots were actually printed, um, the former Secretary of State was sued uh, six times over how the language was written. Um, and I think to Maurice's point, you know, this is there's so much for California voters to weigh in on. You know, they may not have time to research beyond um, what is right in front of them. So I think uh, it does a lot for voter confidence or lack thereof. 
Well, and both sides really pay close attention to the wording because how it's written, Marisa, can really determine how voters view it and whether they vote yes or no. And a lot of these, you know, you have to say they are pretty straightforward, but sometimes there are these hot button issues like pension reform, abortion, LGBTQ rights. And that's where you see the thumb going. Or scale. taxes of any sort. Or seems. taxes of any I mean, sort. That's the, I was smiling when you're speaking because the one, you know, reading back and thinking about how Javier Becerra, perhaps one of the most mild mannered sort of uh, leaders our state has had in a lot of With ways. With the title of general. But got <laughs> sued as attorney general many, many times. We should say he's now uh, health and human services secretary for the Biden administration. I mean, one of them was over this change to commercial property tax rates. And nowhere in the ballot title and summary did they mention taxes, right? They said, well, it would raise more revenues for schools. And so, yeah, I think that there's certain words that certainly are cues to folks. I mean, another fight we're seeing right now play out is over um, some of these limits to transgender rights, which I think the proponents might actually object to the way I just characterize that. But I mean, ultimately, that is what the sweet about measures that some right wing activists have put forward that they want to you know, use them for. And they're saying that, you know, the way that that is being characterized by the current secretary of state is totally unfair. Um, and I think to your point, that is where the rubber does often meet the rubber, some of these social issues. Yeah. And so that group that's putting these on the ballot, uh, it's called Protect Kids California. And they had three uh, different initiatives that would uh, basically ban transgender minors from getting certain kinds of treatment like uh, puberty blockers. It would also prevent uh, trans girls from participating in girls' sports. And uh, the, uh, the Attorney General, Rob Bonta, boiled that down to restricts the rights of transgender youth. And Samia, you can see why the group's proponents were not happy with that. It does, anytime you talk about restricting rights, uh, I think you're going to have people a little predisposed to be against that. Right. I mean, the the comparison I'm thinking of is the, um, you know, the gas tax, repealing the gas tax a couple of years ago, where um, if, you know, I think PPIC, the Public Policy Institute of California, did this um, survey of likely voters of whether they would want a gas tax hike or a gas tax hike repealed. And they said yes. But when you phrase it, uh, as it was written on the ballot title, was eliminating funding for, you know, highway uh, maintenance. And um, they did, you know, that was that was a no. Voters did not want that. Um, so it, it does really make a difference on the outcome. So, Marisa, there are, as, as you mentioned, there are lawsuits. Uh, one side or the other may sue, go to court in Sacramento, try to get the judge to, can, you know, to get the attorney general to rewrite it. How successful are they typically when they go to court? Not very in California. I mean, I think what we've seen is judges are very deferential to the power that the attorney general has. Um, And this is an elected position. I mean, this has been an issue in some attorney general races. I think, you know, the the imbalance in California is a big problem here. We haven't had a Republican elected statewide since 2006. Um, but it does seem that even when there's sort of clear omissions or maybe a little bit, you know, that it feels like they're putting their thumb on the scale, uh, that judges have often just said, you know what, we don't want to sort of get in between an attorney general and this, you know, power that is determined by the state constitution. Um, And that's different, of course, than what we've seen in other states. Right. And uh, some other states, too, have like a citizens commission or at least non-elected officials. Even here in San Francisco, they have sort of a citizens group and the mayor appoints some people and the board of soups appoints some, but they're not elected officials. And Samia, what difference does that make that these folks in, in, in that case or in some states are not actually going before the voters? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, so I think California is one of uh, five states that where it's just the attorney general, other states, there'll be like a mix between the secretary of state's office and the attorney general. But um, I think the partisanship is where um, it really makes a difference. Uh, for example, in Ohio, um, there is a ballot board, but um, it's, you know, it's different from, for example, the California Redistricting Commission. I would say that might be um, a, a comparison in the state where, um, it's also something that can be very subject to partisanship, but it's structured in such a way that, you know, there's supposed to be a certain number of Democrats, a certain number of Republicans, a certain number of, you know, party preference um, uh, people on that board. So how that is structured, I think, greatly impacts um yeah, absolutely. And here in, in California, Marisa, uh, there's been suggestions that maybe the LAO, the Legislative Analyst Office, should do it. They're, you know, appointed to long term. They don't face the voters. They're less subject to lobbying. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's actually sort of ironic that in a state where we have embraced things like a citizens redistricting commission far before a lot of other states, you know, to draw legislative boundaries, we have an open primary here, a top two. So we've embraced a lot of reforms, but the initiative system itself, it's been really hard to get any appetite for either lawmakers or even the public to change it. We really like we, we like this power that we have, and I think we're reticent to touch it. Yeah, absolutely. There have been some tweaks, like uh, we'll see in future elections in November, the way referendums are phrased will be a little more clear. But you're right. Those big reforms really have been uh, hard to get through the legislature. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, the three of us are going to be talking about the life and death of legislation in Sacramento, why some bills make it to the governor, some don't, and what's happening behind the scenes. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos and Samia Kamal. She covers the state capitol for CalMatters. And, you know, we wanted to pivot here and talk about something uh, happening, well, up in Sacramento every day, pretty much, which is new legislation. There's a new legislative session and uh, some 400 bills have already been introduced, uh, maybe 300 or so in the Assembly, 100 in the State Senate. That's according to uh, Chris McKelly, by the way, who's a Sacramento lobbyist who keeps track of these things. And they're not done yet. The deadline for introducing bills this session is a week uh, from Friday. And uh, for the rest of the break, now we're going to look under the hood of this process. And I know, Samia, you've been writing about this. Um, first of all, why the proliferation of bills? I mean, and this has been the case for, you know, many, many, many years now, but why so many? 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I thought it was especially interesting this year and and last year, but since we're looking at such a big budget deficit, um, and we don't, we're we're still not seeing the number of you know bill introductions change, despite lawmakers have been told, you know, don't expect anything with a big price tag to pass. Um, but you know, what I heard from lawmakers was, um, you know, that's not always the goal. The goal of introducing a bill is not for it to pass necessarily. They also sometimes just want uh, to get the opposition party, you know, on the record on, you know, get, get, you know, for example, Republican lawmakers might introduce a bill just to get the Democratic Party lawmakers to um, take a stand on that issue, or, or they just want to start a discussion. Um, You know, it's not always uh, along partisan lines, but sometimes just to get a discussion going that they know, um, maybe it won't happen this year, but maybe next year yeah. or future years. And Marisa, a lot of times these bills are driven by headlines, you know, whether it's a mass shooting, you'll see some gun control things. AI is hot right now. You're seeing some legislation in Sacramento around that kind of thing as well. So they're intended to maybe solve problems, right? Oftentimes, not always. Absolutely. And I mean, even if you disagree with the policy behind it, I think in general, these are, you know, introduced in good faith in the sense that, you know, whether it's a far right Republican or a far left Democrat, their district sent them there often to do the things that they are saying they're going to do, whether or not they'll be successful is the sort of the second part of that question. Um, And then, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that sometimes the whole point of it is just to send a message like with resolutions. And we see this at the local level as well. And I mean, I think ironically, sometimes those end up being some of the most hard fought kind of things we've seen at the local level, right? This pushback against uh, ceasefire resolutions in relation to the Israeli Hamas war. Um, So I, I think that for a lot of lawmakers, the, the, what voters sent them to do is not always going to be fully realized, but they want to be able to go back home and say, at least I tried. Yeah. And, and Samia, of course, Sacramento is dominated by Democrats. They have super majorities, I think, in both houses still. And, the, you know, every, every, all the statewide officials are Democrats. Uh, and yet you'll see bills make it to the governor's desk from Republican lawmakers, you know, so it's not like Republicans are completely shut out. But sometimes, as sort of Marisa suggested, they will introduce things to make a point that they know their Democratic colleagues are just not going to let out a committee, right? Right. And, you know, it's interesting to see even the shifts from one year to another. I think, um, you know, retail theft and crime um, was sort of a, a, you know, non-starter maybe a couple of years ago. And this year you're seeing bipartisan bills and and support. Um, So I think it reflects how things, how the political and social winds shift around the Capitol. And one of the issues, Marisa, is that because there's so many bills and so little time uh, that they don't always get a chance to read these things super carefully. And sometimes uh, things get through and sometimes it's done quite deliberately, you know, by Democrats who are in control up there. And I, I remember AB 109 years oh, yeah. ago. That's the one I always Yeah, think that was the realignment bill that really changed uh, who handled uh, parole violations and all that stuff. I know that's something you've dug into really deeply. Absolutely. I mean, look, that was, I believe, a budget trailer bill. And so that is one way often the governor and the party in power can kind of sneak through policy is to attach bills to the budget. Um, Maybe, you know, because it's a priority of the governor, some Democrats will go along with it. Um, But yeah, AB 109, 
a great example of a bill that I did not feel watching it, that there was a lot of sort of understanding within the legislature of what it was going to do, which in large part was to say that for a lot of nonviolent, non-serious crimes, folks would serve their sentences in county jails, not state prisons. This was the sort of beginning of uh, criminal justice reform. And I think you saw in the years that followed a lot of frustration from local officials uh, who, you know, sheriffs and, and DAs who didn't like it and that they would then push their members to say, why did you vote for this? Or members would come in later. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, though, there's also just this question of like, I think Samia made a really good point of like laying the groundwork. Sometimes policies take years and years to really sort of build up the political will for. Um, Mark Leno, former lawmaker from San Francisco, did this with a lot of uh, criminal justice bills where, you know, the first try, the second try, nothing happens. And then by year five or six, they're getting through. Look at housing and Scott Wiener. Yeah, Scott Wiener, I was going to say, is one of these folks who just continually brings these. He doesn't let a veto stop him. Uh, And oftentimes, Samia, in the veto message, There'll be something kind of giving a roadmap to the author, like, hey, if you do this, that and the other thing, maybe next year I'll sign it. And they, they, they pay attention to that, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. To the veto messages. And I think something else I heard from lawmakers, especially those who are um, are now going into their second year, is that learning process of what happens when your bill gets vetoed and how to engage the governor's office earlier and try to work through those issues and, and bring it back. There's also uh, a rather uh, opaque process that uh, bills end up sometimes that cost money. Go to the Appropriations Committee, Marisa, and the infamous um, um, suspense file where the chair uh, goes through these bills in rapid fire. There's very little explanation, if any, as to why they live or die. Why is that part of the process? Because it does seem rather I don't know if undemocratic, undemocratic is the right word, but certainly not very transparent. Absolutely. I mean, it is an easy way for the party in power to kill legislation it doesn't like without forcing its members to maybe take a tough vote. So sort of the opposite of a member introducing a bill that they know isn't going to go anywhere, but going home to be able to say, look, I did that. Um Making something die in a propes means that the fingerprints of, say, a member who doesn't want to vote against a policy that, say, the teachers union doesn't like or whatever it is um, can just sort of quietly die. It's also sort of that like classic, like do it on a Friday if you have bad news, you know, put it out into the world, bury it uh, before the weekend. I think we often see just like the scope of the approps file is so large that it's hard for us in the media to cover every bill that lives and dies there. Um, There's just not as much attention. Paid as there would be if there was a full, drawn out policy discussion on the floor of one of the houses versus AB, blah, 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 hold, you know, hold on suspense. Like, then we're all like trying to look at what it is or what, yeah. So, I mean, that also means that that takes, though the leadership sticking their neck out to do that. And sometimes it's a matter, it really is a matter of money, right? Like I think years like this, there's more plausible deniability that they are just holding bills to save money. Um, But sometimes it's because they've gotten a message from the governor or from another, you know, the Senate to say, you know what, we don't want to touch this either. So there's a lot of behind the scenes machinations. Well, and I would say, Samia, that in the past, Governor Newsom has pretty much stayed out of the process, you know, until things got to his desk. But this year alone, just in the past few weeks, we've seen him really weigh in early on a wealth tax uh, that was being promoted by Assemblyman Alex Lee from the South Bay. There was also a bill that would have banned tackle football for kids under 12 years old. And then just recently, Scott Wiener introduced a bill that would put 
these mechanisms in cars called car governors that would uh, automatically slow the car down so they couldn't go more than 10 miles an hour in a you know in a, in a, in a residential areas and in each of those cases Mia, the governor has really indicated he doesn't really want to sign those and that killed the wealth tax almost immediately so he what he says does matter it does. I mean, you know, um, the the legislature can always try to uh, override the veto, but I think we have rarely seen that. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's not a, on a specific bill. I think the governor has been outspoken about, you know, taxes in general. Um, but again, I think that goes back to the point that, you know, lawmakers still have to introduce these bills. They still have to go to their, go back to their districts, like Marisa said, and um, you know, say that they put in the effort. They they tried to get this across. I mean, you could really see here, too, how Newsom is sort of positioning himself as a national Democrat who's concerned not just about what's happening in California, but about what is going to happen next year you know, or the, later this year, rather, in terms of the presidential election and, you know, Democrats hopes of maintaining control of the Senate, maybe getting the House back. Um, and so I think that, you know, you might have a little bit more of a parochial view if you're one of 120 lawmakers than if you're Gavin Newsom with apparent hopes for maybe a presidential run himself someday. Um, and I and I do think, you know, he clearly with all of those is worried about this perception of California. Well, and I would say in his, I don't know if defense is the right word, but I think he's also concerned that in this important election year, you know, California has been under the microscope, you know, for years now, uh, focus of things like, you know, crime, public safety. And I think he's also mindful of not wanting to add more logs to the fire with things like banning tackle football and, you know, maybe a wealth tax, things that you know would be red meat for Fox News. And and in that sense, he's not looking out for himself so much, but maybe lawmakers in purple districts, for example. He's continuing, I think, what he's been, which is a really good team player for Biden and National Democrats. Um, Again, it benefits him long term as well. But that's not to say that it's completely like self-absorbed in any way. I mean, I think that sometimes, you know, you can say that members of both parties are a little bit have a little bit of tunnel vision on some of their key issues that doesn't sort of require or, you know, does not result in them sort of looking around and going, is this the best time for this debate? Like, is this the best time for all of us to be having it? And in I an think, election year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's going to be one to watch around all these questions of Prop 47 and retail theft. How far does the legislature want to go versus how far the governor wants to go? And do they want to put a ballot measure on that will then, you know, sort of spin this debate into the fall instead of potentially getting it more wrapped up in the spring? Samia, talk a little bit about the role of committee chair. Because, uh, you know, when Anthony Rendon was the speaker in the assembly, um, I'm thinking of the Public Safety Committee, which, you know, uh, often more tough on crime bills would die. There was a package of bills on fentanyl um, that really did not get the kind of attention or hearing that I think some Democrats wanted. Can you talk now? You know, now we have a new speaker, Robert Rivas. We also today are getting a new Senate president pro tem, Mike McGuire, taking Tony Atkins place. Talk about, you know, how they have empowered or not empowered committee chairs to make some of those decisions. Yeah, I think um, former Speaker Rendon was known to have deferred that power a lot to the committee chairs. Um, Speaker Rivas um, has said that every bill will get a hearing. um, And, you know, I I think that's meant to empower members more. um, Although that wealth tax had a hearing and died like within an hour after Newsom was critical of it, I think. 
That's an exaggeration. Right. Yeah. But I, I mean, maybe, and maybe that's just the process that needs to go through, right? Like, even yeah. if it should be one committee, at least, like, you kind of check the box. Yeah. Uh, and Marisa, the, who the chair is matters too, right? I mean, it definitely, especially for some of these sensitive issues like fentanyl, public safety, you know, uh, Prop 47 reforms. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and but that's also like a direct sort of insight into what the priorities are of a speaker or a Senate pro tem president because they choose these chairs. And so I think, you know, in Rendon's time, there was often this sort of hands-off sense from the speaker, like, oh, well, I just empowered the committee chairs. Well, yeah, but you chose them and you know what their priorities are. So, it, you know, in a way, it all leads back to the leadership of the House. I think just like how sort of clear or opaque the process is, is often the question. I want to ask both of you, uh, we're, you know, we still have, you know, about a week and a half left before the end of the last, the deadline for submitting new bills. But are there some bills that you're looking at that, you know, think are particularly interesting or you want to watch for one reason or another? And I know, Marisa, there's a lot of public safety bills. Um, and as I mentioned, Prop 47, that ballot measure from, is it 10 years ago now? Mm-hmm. Uh, that really changed, a lot of people blame it, um, in, in many cases incorrectly, for the rise in certain kinds of crime. But what's happening in that regard up there that you're looking at? Yeah, so we saw right as the governor was unveiling his budget that he put out um, a kind of list, a, a wish list that he would like to see the legislature take up around retail theft. A lot of it has nothing to do with Prop 47. It's more cracking down on organized retail crime, these flash mobs, you know, this idea that people are uh, stealing stuff in order to resell it on, on a secondary market. So I think I'll be watching to see, because we've also had a series of proposals put forward by the legislature that would deal with Prop 47. All of those would have to go back before voters. So how much does the governor weigh in? Who actually picks up those proposals he's putting forward? And how do they balance this desire, you know, to go to deal with something that's really become an issue in California. Um, But my sense is that the governor's office does not want to see a ballot measure this year. Yeah. Um, Samia, what about you? Anything you would add to bills that you're keeping a close eye on? Um, It feels like we're seeing continued themes of, you know, the insurance companies leaving California and how the legislature deals with those and climate housing, all of the big issues that tend to impact California. But another thing that I keep hearing is legislature is going to try to see how existing laws are working. And so that's something I'll be keeping an eye on is what does that look like and what does that mean? Yeah, I saw a quote from uh, Robert Rivas, the speaker, saying, hey, instead of just like, you know, or in addition, at least, you know, to pumping out all these new laws, let's see how the ones we've we've actually enacted over the years have worked or not worked. Oversight. It is a core function of the legislature. And I think you could argue that that has not been their main focus in recent years and that there's a lot that they could go back and check out. Yeah. Well, I want to say before we close uh, that uh, the ballots, as I said, we said at the top are landing and KQED has a voter guide, which uh, will, I can guarantee you, be non-political. It's very down the middle, helps explain things that are on the ballot uh, with an emphasis on San Francisco Bay Area ballots. You'll find it at kqed.org slash voter guide. Shout out to Guy Marzarati and all the folks here at KQED. I'll put that together. And uh, Samia Kamal from Cal Matters, Marisa Lagos, thank you both as always. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right. That is a wrap for Monday, February 5th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. For Marisa Lagos and all of us here at KQED, I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.